The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. For space flight, or any kind of flight, propulsion is everything. Yet, there are only a handful of companies actually making these engines. It's the reason the U.S. government blocks Lockheed Martin's acquisition of Aerojet Rocketdyne, and why deep-pocketed rocket makers like SpaceX and Blue Origin have gone the vertical integration route, developing their own systems in-house. But Ursa Major is betting on a new approach. We design, build, and deploy rocket engines for everything from small satellite launch to hypersonics to on-orbit applications. And ideally, what we are uh, here to enable is to make sure that the next SpaceX doesn't have to build their own rocket engines. Joe Lorienti's startup is already producing its Hadley engines, which Ursa says are the first ever rocket engines qualified to power both space launches and hypersonic missiles. I'm Morgan Brennan, and this is Manifest Space. Joe Lorienti worked at both SpaceX and Blue Origin before founding Ursa Major in 2015. The Colorado-based company is already delivering its first engines, engines that will be able to carry rockets to orbit and propel hypersonic missiles traveling at five times the speed of sound a capability in focus as the U.S. military develops the tech to counter Russia and China in a new kind of arms race. The engines or the propulsion in general is typically the barrier to entry. So it's it's life or death for a lot of early phase companies. It's time to market for the companies that are successful. And once a company is launching, the engines are a huge risk. They are probably the biggest budget line item, and they typically have a lot of recurring development. So the engine that you fly five years after your first flight is probably 20 iterations different than that first engine. So we exist to really take that on ourselves and really provide the aerospace industry with something much closer to an Intel model. We, we want to have an engine that you can fly today that uh, provides lower risk or higher performance, but we also want to take on bleeding edge technical development so that the engines you're flying in a couple of years are market leading. How did you decide to start the company? I started it after working at both SpaceX and Blue Origin, and I worked on the propulsion teams at both. Obviously, both companies are extremely innovative, extremely successful, and really, I just saw a need for the industry to move past the vertical integration model. So, the, again, take, taking the next SpaceX or Blue Origin, they don't have to be founded by a Jeff Bezos or an Elon Musk. They can build a business case and raise private capital, and having an engine available, especially a high-performing or market-leading engine, gives these companies the ability to go compete in a really competitive marketplace very quickly. And of course, one of the things we've seen, I mean, even just recently with the collapsed Lockheed Martin Aerojet Rocketdyne deal is that there's just not a lot of competition <laughs> when it comes yes. to the manufacture of propulsion and rocket engines. That's exactly right. And outside of even the rocket space, propulsion in general has faced a ton of consolidation. If you look at aircraft engines, you know, we, we have GE, Rolls-Royce, Pratt & Whitney, and, and there are smaller providers for things like private jets. Honeywell is out there, but we don't have a really healthy industrial base like we do in software, consumer electronics, where 
you can pick and choose the components that best fit your mission or your vehicle or uh, hopefully advance you past what you've been providing the marketplace. So propulsion consolidation is, is a big risk to the U.S. and it's a big risk to the industry. So I, ideally, we can go solve that for a lot of a lot of the new players. I mean, historically, it's always been kind of a long lead time when you're talking about this type of technology. Um, it's also been capital intensive. How are you able to hurdle those bars and then bring costs down? So one of our one of our customers likes to say that their company saved five years and fifty million dollars by buying engines from us because they didn't have to take that onto themselves. So it's really exciting to see that we can accelerate time to market, we can provide better returns to our customers, investors, and provide better returns to our investors as well. But I think the really important piece is having that technology and that product focus so that we can we can really take the burden of ensuring these engines are reliable, capable, high performing. And our customers get to focus on the flight aspect. It's it's really a question of specialization. Where where are you providing a market differentiator? And in the case of a launch company or a hypersonics company, it's typically not the IP around the engines or the technology around the engines. It's the mission itself. It's the service they are providing. Hmm. Um, 3D printing, would this be possible without it? I don't think Ursa Major would exist without it. Our, our engines heavily leverage 3D printing. You can actually see behind me a, a, a 3D printed piece of one of our engines, but uh, you know, it, it really enabled, 3D printing really enabled the early phases of the company. When we needed to prototype, we needed to be extremely scrappy. Now that we're in production, it does really interesting things for economies of scale, but our business plan really necessitates that we be in production and development at the same time. So. 3D printing really advances that capability where, where we can have a production line of engine parts and we can make a change by printing a different piece or printing, printing the same piece differently versus having to kind of start from scratch in a supply chain question. Hmm. Okay, so how many engines are you already producing? And you already have customers too, right? Yes, we have either eight or nine commercial customers right now and then about a dozen government contracts. And we in the past have delivered probably 12 engines prior to this year. And those were all very much prototype protocol engines. So uh, very capable, but we had to work really closely in junction with our, with our partners out there, because if we took two engines side by side, they might look a bit different because they were very prototype. So we entered production this year. Uh, we've delivered, I believe seven engines so far this year, and we are on track to deliver 30 by the end of the year. Huh? Now, what does that look like? I guess once you start, w- once you fully ramp, um, and scale your production capabilities. How many do you expect to be delivering um, on an annual basis? So we we see demand for over 100 engines a year. So a lot of the production planning, yeah. a lot of the system fill that we're doing now is to get to two engines a week of build and delivery. Huh. Are they going to be reusable? They are, yes. Uh, right now, none of our customers are reusing them, but it's something we take really seriously. We think in five years, if you're not reusing your rocket, you're not reusing your engines, you're not competing economically. So uh, we, we've done a lot of work to make sure these engines have a lot of reusability baked into them. So where is there more demand then, or I guess both in terms of right now and over the longer term? Mm-hmm. Is it going to be space flight and more traditional rocket-related mm-hmm. missions, or is it going to be hypersonics? I think we'll see growing demand in both. So right now we are about 50-50, but I think that the space flight side is going to take precedent over the next few years. And that's really because of a couple of major tailwinds that have happened in the last, call it six months. So the the Russian invasion of Ukraine has limited Russia's involvement in US aerospace and Western aerospace. So 
in addition to losing Soyuz launches, we've lost the ability to import Russian rocket engines, which is actually something a lot of people didn't know that the U.S. was doing, is that we've been mm -hmm. flying Russian rocket engines here in the U.S. for, for the last 20 years. For national uh, security you, missions, which is crazy. Exactly, yeah. So our, our taxpayer-funded spy satellites are flying on Russian rocket engines. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think we'll see a shift now, so that's great. Um, but Ukraine was also a large exporter of propulsion. So a lot of the focus around space launch and the accessibility of low Earth orbit is going to fall to where is our propulsion coming from now? And Amazon buying up basically every large launch not named SpaceX uh, over the next few years <laughs> is, is definitely changing things. Are you actually seeing increased demand tied to that Amazon uh, launch Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, I think we were in a world where every small launcher especially was in a race to the bottom for pricing. And now what we're seeing is we're sort of back to square one where availability is the big question. If if you have a satellite that was supposed to fly on a Vulcan or an Atlas V or an Ariane uh, launcher and that's not available anymore because Amazon bought them up, then you're all of a sudden sort of back to the drawing board working with these smaller launch companies or more bespoke launch companies to try to find a ride to space. Oh, that's fascinating. I mean, it makes a lot of sense when you lay it out that way, but the, the ripple effects of an Amazon coming into the space space. Um, yeah. on, the, on the hypersonic side of it, I would imagine that what we've seen, you mentioned what's going on with Ukraine. Um, but what we've also seen is we've seen Russia actually deploying hypersonic right. weapons um, in real time, real life, in the midst of this war in Ukraine. Um, obviously, we saw some major high-profile tests that were declassified, some of the, some of the details declassified, um, yes, around China last year as well. So it does seem to be growing in focus, um, and the capability of this race for, for, for more capability seems to be taking on a, a greater urgency. Are you finding that's the case? Yeah, I think what we're seeing is that the U.S. is going to invest more heavily in testing, and that's that's something that's been a, sort of a snowball over the last couple of years. As mm -hmm. you mentioned, there have been a couple of high-profile tests out of China and Russia. The U.S. has done some some accelerated testing, but I think we will see more and more investment there. And I think we're going to get a bit more nimble. I think that policymakers and the Department of Defense are coming around to there's probably not a one-size-fits-all in hypersonics. We're going to see investment in an Air Force opportunity, a Navy opportunity, um, and we're going to see a few different platforms that are likely smaller than a single mega platform for hypersonics. So I think the landscape is quite a bit different than it was two years ago, and it'll be interesting to see the way DOD decides to invest over the next two or three years. Do you think the DOD is moving fast enough on this? And do you think that they fully understand the disruptive capability that you could bring to the table here? Great question. We've been lucky that the DOD has been a great partner on the hypersonics front, and and certainly investing in hypersonic testing is going to be really important for us. A, a liquid rocket engine like ours, especially one that's designed to be able to suit uh, hypersonic applications, has the ability to mimic a number of adversarial capabilities. So it's not just mimic this single Russian application or the single Chinese application so that we can try to detect or deter those, but uh, a single rocket engine of ours can mimic 10 or 15 applications. So I think that the DOD will continue to invest in how do we mimic these, how do we try to detect these, and how do we deter these threats? Yeah, I mean, I'm not a rocket scientist, so maybe this is a really basic question from your vantage point, but just the fact that you are able to design these rocket engines or design these engines in general that have these dual use or more um, capabilities, how, how unusual is that? And what is it taking in terms of the technology to be able to do it? 
It, it's definitely unusual. And it's one of those complete startup luck stories where we were building a company around propulsion for space launch and a hypersonic opportunity came in front of us when we were you know, five, six employees. So we, we had to pretty quickly say, can we architect a single product to meet the needs of both of these? And it, it took some pretty unique uh, physics and some pretty unique engineering to, to get our engines there because a traditional rocket engine doesn't need to fly in atmosphere or be carried on the belly of an airplane uh, or deeply throttle so that it can sit at a, a single velocity at a single altitude. It's, it's a very simple ballistic mission. So designing that into our engines was a huge technical challenge that has opened up a lot of markets for us. And uh, ideally, every one of our products going forward will be able to learn and advance from a lot of what we've done uh, to date with our hypersonic applications. Oh, that's fascinating. So when are we going to see some of your hypersonic applications actually being tested? We've done, some, we've done some testing, uh, some integrated testing on hypersonic vehicles in the last few years. We're going to see some pretty interesting flight testing, I'll, I'll say, over the next uh, year to two. Okay. I'm looking forward to that then. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the engines themselves, because you have the Hadley engine, which is already in production. Uh, and then you have another engine that you're developing as well, right? Yes, our Ripley engine is about 10 times the size of Hadley, so it really sized much more for medium-class launch. I think, think move away from mini-fridge to, to refrigerator or Volkswagen-sized satellites, and that, that's just the direction we saw the market going. We saw you know, the availability of launch opening up opportunity for more and more capable payloads and on-orbit assets. So we, we wanted to take all of our lessons learned from Hadley, which has a tremendous amount of heritage, test heritage, you know, nearing, nearing 50,000 seconds of test time here on the ground. So. We wanted to take all of the lessons and the iterations on Hadley and apply them to a larger engine. And we're really excited about bringing that engine to market here late next year. And you're designing and manufacturing all of this stuff out in Colorado, correct? And you're testing correct. it as well? Yes, we have a really a one-of-a-kind facility out here where all of our engineers sit, uh, but we also have our manufacturing. We have 3D printing, we have um, CNC machining, and then we do an engine assembly and test at the same facility. So. There's a logistics advantage where we're not shipping engines around the country. You know, if you're down apart for a day, you don't have to wait for it to get there from California or wherever your your headquarters is. But we also have this learning curve advantage. There's kind of a tightened feedback loop where if there's a problem on a test stand or data doesn't look quite right, our engineers are sitting right there. So they are very intimate with the hardware. They're close to build. They're close to test. It's, it's very different than anywhere else. Uh, certainly I've worked and I think anywhere else that's operating today. Have you been able, well, how, so how quickly are you growing your staff and have you been able to recruit given the fact that um, this sector seems to have had new life breathed mm -hmm. into it and, and you have so many startups across so many aspects of the yeah. sector uh, now, now looking to recruit? Great question. Yeah, the, the recruiting has probably been the side I've been most proud of at our company. So we, we've grown, we just crossed 200 employees in the last couple of weeks. So uh, we've doubled in size over the last 12 months and a lot of that has been enabled. This is this is really exciting, really capable talent. And a lot of that has been enabled by our model. So th these engineers see a lot of startups that are replicating the SpaceX or the Blue Origin model. And if you're a propulsion engineer, it's much more exciting to work at the company where you're betting all in on propulsion and propulsion is the focus of the company. So we've really benefited from the fact that there are a lot of companies that look somewhat alike. They might have different sized rockets or different offerings to orbit, but we're pretty unique in our offering of the most capable propulsion is our entire business model. So we, we've been able to grab a lot of talent that way. What was it like to work at SpaceX and Blue Origin? It was great. Uh, I, I couldn't have asked to work at better places at the times that I did, especially, you know, this was 
end of Falcon 1 and early Falcon 9, getting up through. I, I wasn't there when they really architected reusability, but the first Falcon 9 1.1 flights were really exciting. Um, the first Dragon uh, birthing to the space station was extremely exciting. And uh, at Blue Origin, you know, we got to take new engine architectures and work toward these um, pretty exciting tourism flights that, that BE3 and New Shepard have been flying. So great companies to work at. And uh, I don't think I would have learned more in that, those windows that I worked at them anywhere else. And you were based in Van Horn, Texas for a while too, right? That's <laughs> yes. not, I mean, I, I made the journey down there for Jeff Bezos' space flight last year. That is, not, that is not an easy trip and there is not a lot in that town. I'll tell you, it's it's amazing for testing rocket engines. Really, no noise complaints out there, but uh, sure. it, it it was quite a bit of culture shock moving back here to Colorado and having you know Trader Joe's next door. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although I'm sure the Tex-Mex isn't uh, isn't quite as tasty. Right, uh, right. <laughs> uh, okay. Um, so, just in terms of how you see this broader market and this broader piece of the industry growing, I mean. What, what is your take on total addressable market and the portion that Earth's major can snatch, can grab yeah. over the coming years? Yeah, something that's really exciting to walk through is if you look at total addressable market for any one of these segments, propulsion as a horizontal is bigger than any individual segment. So if we say our engines work in hypersonics, they work in you know the small 150 kilogram below Earth orbit launch, and they also work on orbital transfer vehicles or kind of last mile services for some of the larger launchers, that that horizontal is bigger than any one of those segments. And, and you can apply that really anywhere in propulsion. If you're looking at drones or uh, let's say commercial aircraft, the propulsion segment of commercial aircraft is bigger than any one singular commercial aircraft piece. So it, it, it's a big piece of our story that if we can design the right products and get the right product market fit, uh, our, our vision should be much bigger than a single rocket, a single mission. It's it's really applying to this extremely important technology base across a number of really important verticals. Interesting. I mean, there are some companies that are focused on commercial applications of supersonic or hypersonic travel, point-to-point -point travel. Is that something you would get into as well? I think that's down the road. Absolutely. We, we want to be the propulsion company. So if, yeah. if there's a need for something innovative, you know, we, we always point back to our vision statement here. It's enable bolder missions. So if we can help enable something like supersonic hypersonic travel that has not been done before and there's a propulsive need there, we want to be the ones to take that on. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about some of the customers that you have already signed on and where we might be able to see some of your technology in, in real, in the real world sooner rather than later? Yeah. Yeah. We, our, our customer base is really exciting because it's extremely diverse. That's that's an advantage of our business model as well. You know, we we aren't just selling into say NASA launches, but we have startups of uh, recent graduates that are doing sounding rockets, and we have uh, prime integrators as as customers. So, some of the ones that we we've been on the public record about that are really exciting. Phantom Space is a, a launch company that really what we are enabling them to do is one have higher performing rockets, but Two, time to market. Uh, they, they want to beat uh, the fastest time to orbit from company inception by by 50%. So that's really exciting. And um, we should see some great things out of them in the, in the not too distant future. And then on the hypersonics front, Stratolaunch has been an amazing partner. They are doing some really exciting hypersonic flight testing uh, around reusable test beds and technology development so that, uh, similar to our model, they help advance the industry around them by developing new hypersonic capabilities. Mm, Shadow launch is an interesting one. It doesn't it doesn't always get a lot of media attention, but um, even in the post 
Paul Allen era, it, yeah. it's, uh, it's sort of pivoted a little bit, but it's doing some really fascinating test flights. Yes. Yeah. Um, how are you funding all this? So we have raised a few rounds of private capital, uh, but another advantage of our business model is we were early to revenue. So we have some revenue, but we also have amazing backers that are really excited about the growth here of providing into multiple markets and really creating a foothold as, as a propulsion innovator. So uh, we, we raised a Series C last year, and prior to that, we had raised three other uh, kind of institutional or angel rounds. In, in terms of an investor base, do you find that Silicon Valley and the VC community has really kind of latched onto uh, this sector in a way that it hadn't in the last couple of years? Are you finding more traction among more, I guess, traditional aerospace mm -hmm. and, and defense investors? Great question. Uh, I think we saw a lot of interest in the new space realm for the first few years of Earth's major. We we, you know, we'd seen companies, we had seen investors invest in space launch companies, satellite companies, data companies. The defense side was trickier in Silicon Valley. And uh, I think, I think it's a massive shift that has happened over the last two or three years. When, when I was raising, say, our seed round or our Series A, it, it was really hard to find investors that liked the idea of selling into the U.S. government. And that, that's shifted quite a bit. So we're seeing much more attention on defense-specific startups out of Silicon Valley. So what's the long-term plan then in terms of Ursa Major? Would you go public at some point down the road uh, once you reach certain milestones? How are you thinking about that? I think it'd be pretty exciting to be a public company, that especially as an independent sort of merchant provider of technology. There's there's sort of a signal that you create as as a public company, but you know, we're, we're just really focused on how quickly can we scale. And uh, th there's certainly some advantages to scaling as a private company. So. Uh, public markets potentially down the road, but the focus here is let's grab more market share. Let's enable some customers to do really exciting things and let's fly a lot of engines. Okay. So in the near term, then what are some of the other milestones uh, that we should be watching for from Ursa Major? We have some really exciting customer milestones coming up that we, we typically let our customers do the talking, but uh, there, there's some exciting stuff that'll be coming out here in the not too distant future. And then uh, we should be talking a bit more here at Ursa Major about what's next after Ripley uh, in, the, in the near future as well. Oh, okay. So um, with that, is there anything I haven't asked you? Is there anything we haven't touched on that you want to note? No, this has been great. You know, I think it, we're in a really exciting year where we're, we're focused a lot on production. We're, we're delivering a lot of engines to a lot of customers. And uh, the next couple of years should be really exciting with new products hitting the market. And the need that's been created by, like we've said, Amazon and uh, Ukraine is just uh, really unexpected. So we're, we're excited to help out there. That does it for this episode of Manifest Space. Make sure you never miss a launch by searching Manifest Space wherever you get your podcasts and by following the Squawk on the Street podcast. For more on the space race, be sure to watch Squawk on the Street on CNBC. I'm Morgan Brennan. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.